just pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So if you have a Bible, I'll encourage you to grab it, and we are going to be in John chapter 8. Um, parents, like last week, uh, Emily has prepared some activity bags um, at the back, and so if you have some little ones and they need something to keep themselves busy, you can go get one of those. I know last week many of the families were like, can we just take these home? And unfortunately, no, please bring them back uh, so that we can keep uh, restocking them and, and having them for moments like that. So um, yeah, go ahead and do, do that if you need. Uh, I'm not going to do really any recap. We have a, a lot of work to do this morning. We are going to look at verses 31 all the way to the end of the chapter. And so it's a big chunk of Scripture. And so really what I want to do, like it's an, it's an amazing passage of Scripture. And one that as I read it, I felt kind of like a, a giddy kid as I'm like, man, this is so amazing. But then it was like, you know how sometimes the Holy Spirit just kind of punches you in the gut and you're like, oh man, this is super convicting. It's one of those passages, so buckle up. Um, but uh, I, I just want to read it in its entirety because sometimes when you kind of, you know, read a bit and pause and unpack it, you, you miss the, the whole overall picture. So I want to read John 8, 31 to 59. And then I basically just have three points this morning that we want to uh, look at as we unpack it. So feel free to follow along. Uh, and so this is what it says. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are Samaritan? You are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon. But I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. 
Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you were not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple the reading of God's word. Isn't that amazing? I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you've overheard uh, people fighting and the tension is building and building and building and building and you're sitting there, maybe you're at a restaurant and you're like, oh my goodness, something is about to go down. That's this passage where you go, man, alive. The tension between the crowds and Jesus is just building and building and building. And then we end where they want to kill him in that moment. So the question then we want to start with is, who exactly is Jesus speaking to here? And I think most of us would assume, well, it must be the religious leaders, right? That seems to be the people that Jesus has the most kind of disagreements with. And when we, when we studied verses 12 to 30, Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees. So is, isn't it just continuing on? But as I, as I studied, actually, who Jesus is speaking to is the crowds of people who had professed that they believed in him. If you read uh, verse 30 of chapter 8, it says, As he was saying these things, many believed in him. And then it continues. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, and then, he, and then he goes on to say what he says. So that kind of comes as a shock, and we're going to unpack a little bit, because so far, usually the most hostile people towards Jesus are the religious leaders. But now what we're seeing is that even the crowds turn against him. Even people that said, we believe you, Jesus. And, and, and so we've seen this already, right? Multiple times in the Gospel of John, people who seem to profess some kind of belief in Jesus, but we're told that it's not real. Um, John 2, 23 and 24, if you remember, it says, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. So last time Jesus was in Jerusalem, it says many people, yeah, we believe in you. And Jesus said, actually, I'm not gonna entrust myself to you because I know what's in your heart. Even in John 7, we're told, yet many of the people believed in him. And then we're told the next, the next verse is that they're actually muttering about him. And I don't know about you, but muttering is not like a positive word in my vocabulary. Oh, they're muttering nice things about me. That's ne no one ever says that. So think about that. People say, we believe in you. And then in the next verse, they're muttering about him and arguing about him. So we've seen all along in the Gospel of John there seems to be this, this group of people that say, we believe in you, Jesus, but they don't really. And when push comes to shove and when Jesus begins to say some hard things, we see their true colors, don't we? And so what we're going to see in our passage is really what it's an unraveling of the, quote, faith 
of these believing Jews over several issues that Jesus is going to confront them on. And I want you to notice, because we noticed this in chapter 6, how fast in chapter 6 the crowds went from, um, this surely is the prophet, let's make him king, to this is offensive, I'm leaving. Notice how quickly the crowds went from, we believe in you, to then picking up stones and, you deserve to die, Jesus. Like, that's pretty fast. One conversation. <laughs> and the crowds turn that fast. And here's what's amazing. The stumbling block to them believing is actually Jesus himself. It's him. He is the stumbling block to them actually placing real faith in them. And so what the crowds represent here are the kind of religious, ethnic, moral self-justification that all religions, all human beings use as a way to, to justify themselves before God. And Jesus, what he's doing is he's actually exposing the real heart condition of the crowds. And so three things Jesus confronts in our text, I believe. Uh, and so, so one, Jesus confronts the crowd's ethnic pride. Two, Jesus confronts their blindsided morality. And then three, Jesus confronts their faulty theology. Those three things. So I just want to unpack each each one of them. So verses 31 to 40, this kind of first section, Jesus is going to now kind of push up against and confront the pride that they have in the fact that we are Jews. So Jesus begins by, by saying this, right? He says to the Jews who had believed him. So a crowd of people that said, we believe you, Jesus. This is what he says. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So it's like Jesus, right? If you guys, if you crowds, if you're really my disciples, if you really believe, then you will abide in my word and you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. It's this, it's this issue of longevity. Real disciples of Jesus have longevity. They abide in his word. And, and, and we've seen that already. We love that he feeds us. We love that he heals us. And it's like, okay, but if you're actually my disciples, there'll be some longevity as you follow me. Now, what's the truth that, that Jesus is speaking about, right? If you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And I've heard this used lots of times to, to just talk about any kind of truth that we want to support, right? You'll know the truth and then that truth is going to set you free. I don't think Jesus means just kind of like any truth. The truth that he's talking about is himself. And in a few chapters, Jesus is going to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So Jesus is saying, if you want to paraphrase it, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples, and you will know me, and I will set you free. Jesus is saying, I am the truth, right? And so if you abide in me, then you're going to know me, and I will be the one who sets you free. The reason that I know that Jesus is talking about himself is because just any kind of truth doesn't set us free. Jesus sets us free, right? And so he says, if you abide with me, you'll know me, and I'll set you free from, which we're going to see, a whole bunch of stuff that they were enslaved to still, so this is what a true disciple looks like. We abide in Jesus. We follow him. We seek to know him. We submit to him. We find him more and more precious. He controls my life. That is a true disciple, Jesus says to these crowds. Okay, so look how they respond. Verse 33, they answer him, answered him, we are offspring of Abraham. 
So already they're on the defensive. We are offspring of Abraham, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. Ironic much? Like, do you know your own history? We've never been enslaved to anyone, Jesus. Really? Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, now Rome under Roman occupation. So they're like, just listen to how they respond, right? We're Jews, Jesus. We're Israelites. We're from Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. So they're offended at the fact that Jesus says, you need to become free. You need to be set free. So on one hand, it's like unbelievably ironic because they've, like, they've been slaves to people so many times. But I actually think it's more than just, they're not just talking about physical slavery. We've never been enslaved to anyone. I think they're talking about more of this kind of spiritual inward freedom and privilege because we're God's chosen people. So right away, they've played the ethnic heritage card. Right? We, we're from Abraham's line, Jesus. Why are you talking about, we're, do you know who we are? We've never been enslaved to anyone spiritually. We're free. We're God's chosen people. Um, Rabbi Akaba said, all Israelites are king's sons, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's even a, a, a phrase that kind of encapsulates their national pride. We are free sons of Abraham who have never inwardly bowed to foreign rule. So they have said, oh yeah, sure, sure, sure. Physically, we've been slaves before, but we have never inwardly bowed the knee to anyone. Which I'm like, really? Golden calf? Come on, guys. <laughs> but that was the pride. We're descendants of Abraham. We're not, we don't need to be made free. We are free. And already, so what, what the, these Jewish crowds are doing is already... They're forgetting the warning of John the Baptist. If you remember when John the Baptist was baptizing people, he says in Luke 3, 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And I love this. And John is like, he knows what they're going to say. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God's able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So John the Baptist says, don't even bring that nonsense in here. Oh, we're Abraham's sons. God could make these stones Abraham's sons if he wanted to. But they've already forgotten this, right? They're offended by Jesus saying that they're slaves and they need to be set free. And they go, we're Jews. We don't need to be set free. And so Jesus kind of un unpacks it a little bit in verse 34, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. You, you crowds, you think you're free, but you're actually a slave to sin. And so the practice of sin proves that someone is a slave, but when people actually practice sin, what it does is it actively enslaves someone, right? So you being in sin proves that you are a slave to sin, but as you are in sin, it's like the chains are getting tighter and tighter and tighter. It's actively enslaving you. And so what Jesus means is he, he says, I'm not talking about Caesar. I'm not talking about Rome. You are a slave to your devotion to your ethnic pride, your self-centeredness. That's what's enslaving you. You're so blind because you're strutting around saying, we are Abraham's descendants. It's very similar to Romans 6 when Paul says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Paul says, whatever you present yourself to, you're a slave to that. So that's why Jesus says, if the Son sets you free, verse 36, you will be free indeed. 
It's It's not your ethnic heritage that sets you free. The Son has to set you free. I, Jesus goes on, I, I you know, um, in verse 37, I know you are offspring of Abraham. So Jesus is kind of like conceding. I know that genetically speaking, sure, you, you, you come from the line of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my f- word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father. You do what you've heard from your father. So notice that, that Jesus is saying, sure, genetically speaking, you're descended from Abraham, but now he's kind of hinted, you actually have a different father. And we're going to see in a little bit, he's talking about Satan. But he says, you do what your father says. Sure, you're, sure, you're ethnically Jewish. Biologically, you are a, a son or a daughter of Abraham. But you're actually not Abraham's children. Because if you were, you would be doing what Abraham, your father, did. He's, he says that much in verse 39 when they kind of double down and go, no, we are Abraham. He goes, okay, sure, you're, you're descended from Abraham, but you're not like your father Abraham at all. So here's the key. Being a physical descendant of Abraham, in the crowd's case, being biologically Israelites means nothing. Abraham's true children are those who believe in the son. Genetics means nothing. And this is not the only place, like Romans 2, 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. A Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. Romans 9. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they're his offspring. Right, So what Jesus is doing is he's confronting their ethnic pride and the Jews thought of themselves very highly because we're sons of Abraham and we are the spiritual elite and we are God's chosen. And Jesus says, actually, you're a slave to sin. Your genetics means nothing. True Jews are those who believe in Jesus. And he even uses this kind of little metaphor to, to again, strike at the root of their assurance he says the slave doesn't remain in the house forever the son remains forever you guys are slaves to sin and if you know culturally in that time slaves weren't guaranteed a spot in the 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 family house they could just be cast out whenever and so he's comparing them to that you guys think you're sons of abraham you're not you're slaves to sin and you can be cast out whenever so for us today we we don't place much spiritual pride in our ethnicity, ethnicity I, I think, anymore. I'd, I've never met anyone who's like, I'm Irish or whatever. I'm American. I'm Canadian. I don't think we place as much spiritual emphasis on our ethnic heritage, right? I come from this country or that country or this is my, you know, my background is that I'm from Europe or whatever. I don't think it's the same. But man, oh man, do we place a lot of emphasis and pride in our familial spiritual heritage, so let me tell you a little bit about the Ebies. Um, if you don't know, that's my last name. So um, my, my dad is a pastor, and him and my mom, they, they, we, we grew up in South America, and they were missionaries in um, Colombia and in Venezuela until I was eight years old. And my dad, for as long as I can remember, has preached. He's a pastor. My great-grandpa uh, was also a pastor, and he came over on the boat from Europe, and he kind of established three congregations. And there's actually pictures of him. And he would ride his bike from one church to the next, 
to the next and preach on Sundays. And his pay was like not money, but like here's a bag of potatoes. Here's some flour. Thank you for preaching. And, and he, he would do that. And actually, when my, um, when my grandpa died a few years ago, it was kind of cool. My, my, my dad uh, was over in Ontario uh, leading up to his death and afterwards and started really digging into like the EB family history. And I think they went for a trip down into the States to like Pennsylvania and parts of New York and kind of find, uh, you know, where did we come from? And he traced our, our heritage and our genealogy back 12 generations of Christians, 12 generations. And some of the names, and I can't remember them, but they were just ridiculous names back in the day. Do you remember, Molly, what was one of their names? Sarek. I don't know if you've never heard it, and it's spelt really bizarre, and sorry if your name's Sarah. It's a beautiful name, uh, but we, we traced back, and I remember my dad sharing that he's like 12 generations of Ebies have followed Jesus, and look at this great Christian heritage that you come from. So in, do you know what that means in terms of my salvation and my standing before God? Nothing. It means Nothing. I, I don't come to the table and go, hey, look, God, great-grandpa was a preacher. My dad's a preacher. Twelve generations of EBs loving you, Jesus. No, that means nothing in terms of my salvation. I was born a wretch. I was born a slave to sin. I was still an enemy of God, and I brought nothing to the table to negotiate with. Nothing. I mean, Paul talks about this in Philippians. You think about a guy that could brag about his background. It was Paul. He says, if anyone could boast or have confidence, it's me. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm an Israelite. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm a Pharisee. He said, I was so zealous that I persecuted the church. As for righteousness, according to the law, Paul says, I was blameless. So here's a guy that could go, look at my heritage, look at my upbringing, look at all the things I've done. And what does he say about it? He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as what? As rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. So I think Jesus, even today, confronts our familial heritage, our pride in how spiritual we are. And look at where I come from. And look, there's five generations. of Like, don't get me wrong. I'm blessed that I came from the family I came from. That's, like, that's awesome. But you're a fool if you think that you can stroll into Jesus' presence and put stuff on the table and go, look at where I come from. He goes, you're a slave to sin. Doesn't matter who your grandparents were. Just because your parents are Christians doesn't mean you're not a wretch that needs to be set free. Right? So we do this. I know we do this. Because I do this. And so what Jesus does is many of us can be offended when he comes to us and says, you're a slave to sin. And you go, well, wait, whoa, 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 wait a second. Do you know the family I come from? And it doesn't matter who you come from. You're a slave to sin and you need to be set free by the Son. So it's actually a prideful thing to think, well, I'm not a slave to sin because look at the great family that I come from. And actually, just to, it's actually pride the other way as well. Because some of you, you go, I did not come from a great family. 
and you go, you don't know the things I've done, Jesus. You don't know the family I've come from. Do you know that's also pride? To say, you, Jesus, I'm too far gone. It's like, no. You just need the Son to set you free. And then you'll be free. So Jesus confronts any kind of pride that we put in where we come from. That's what he did with the crowds. He says, sure, genetically speaking, you're children of, or, or you're descendants from Abraham, but you're not his children. You can't play that card. That, that gives you no credit in the kingdom. Secondly, Jesus confronts their blindsided morality. And so it's just kind of building, right? Jesus offends them when it comes to their ethnic pride, and he goes, well, you're not, you're not even real children of Abraham. Like, that's offensive to them. Now he's going to confront their blindsided morality. So in verse 39, they double down, right? They say, no, Abraham is our father. And so Jesus, again, says, well, that's not true, because if it was true, you'd be doing what Abraham did. But you're seeking to kill me. Someone that just told you the truth that's not what Abraham would do. You're doing the works that your father did. Again, right, he's hinting, you have someone else who's your father, not Abraham. So it's just, it makes sense, right? Any kind of descendant from someone, you would assume that they would either look or act or behave like their family members. So I'll even tell you, like with our own family. So we have three kids, Lucy, Ruby, and Oliver. And me and my wife joke when like we see our kids do something it's like, man, that is like you. Or she'll say like, that's all Eby. Usually when it's something really ridiculous or like, that's all Eby. That doesn't come from my side. But what we all expect in some way that our children will look like us or behave like us or like have values. Right? We just assume that. Wow, you look like your dad. You look like your mom. You behave exactly like your parents. That's what Jesus is saying. Okay, you're saying Abraham is your father. If that were true, you would think that you would behave somewhat like him. But you don't. Because you're trying to kill me, Jesus says, you're actually behaving like your true father. It's not Abraham, though. And so they respond, and this is so good, they respond in verse 41 by saying, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. So I hope you notice that the jab that this is at Jesus. Jesus is calling out, okay, you're trying to kill me, you're doing these evil works, and they go, well, yeah, you know what, Jesus, at least we're not born from sexual immorality, So we know, right, that there were irregularities surrounding Jesus' birth, the virgin birth. And so I know, because humans are humans, that there would have been stories and rumors made up about how Mary got pregnant. We know it wasn't Joseph. So Jesus, at least our mom didn't sleep around. I was going to use a different word, but I won't because there's children present. But at least, Jesus, we're not born from sexual immorality. Like you are, man, it is like a dig at Jesus' past. And we know that's not true, right? It was a miraculous birth. But Jesus just kind of keeps exposing their blindsided morality. He says, if you were of God, you would love me, right? Why, why don't you understand what I'm saying? And I love this. And Jesus says, you don't understand what I'm saying because you actually can't bear to hear it. So it's not that I'm speaking in a, in a manner that's too confusing for you. You just don't want to hear it. And then here's the call out. You are of your father, the devil. 
right? He's hinted before, okay, yeah, you're doing the works your father did, and it's not Abraham, and now he says, well, it's because you're doing the works of your father, the devil, you're doing his will, he's a murderer and a liar, and Jesus says, I'm telling you the truth, and yet you don't believe me, and the reason is, is that you're not actually of God. So here's what's happening. The crowds, like we said, they're claiming to be Abraham's children. God is our father. We keep the law. We're good people. At least we're not born from sexual immorality like you, Jesus. Like we've got a a good past. And Jesus says, actually, you're not good people. If you were like Abraham, then you'd be like him. And you're wanting to kill me and you're all liars. You're actually more like your father, Satan, than who you claim is your father, Abraham. So here's what's happening. I believe they were blindsided by their own morality, that they were going, look at our life. And we see this all over the gospels, especially the religious leaders, but Jewish people in that day and age, the crowds, They were very impressed by how they could outwardly keep the law. Look at my morality. Look at how good I am. Look at how much I tithe. Look at how often I go to the temple for this or for that. All the while, Jesus confronts them. You're plotting to murder me? Okay, so you're doing all of these outward things, but man, you're just like Satan. You're lying to yourself. You're plotting murder. And, and, and then when they're confronted with that, hey, look at this inconsistency. What do they do? At least we're not like you, Jesus, and your sketchy mother. At least we're not like that. So the example that I thought of, and, and as, I, as I'm preaching, I'm like, that, that sounds very familiar to lots of us today. I don't know if you've ever done that when you've been caught or called out for some kind of sin or inconsistency or someone goes like, man, I saw you do this and what's going on? I don't know about you, but oftentimes I'm tempted to respond by instantly comparing myself to someone else. Well, at least I'm not like so-and-so. I'm not, it's not that bad. Right? Our, our, your kids do this, don't they? I mean, our kids do this. Maybe your kids are perfect. But kids, but kids do this. Whenever it's like, hey, like, look at this, this playroom. Who made this enormous mess? And one will be like, well, she did that over there. And it's like, okay, well, now I know who did it because <laughs> you just kind of exposed yourself. But, but our kids do this all the time. When they're confronted with a, a disobedient behavior or, or a sin or just like a disobedient, or disobeying their parents, oftentimes it's like, well, Remember when she did that? And we do this too, right? I, I've, I've, I've heard people literally say that kind of stuff. Struggling in marriage, and they said, well, at least I'm not like so-and-so. They're way more far gone than we are. They're dealing with way more serious stuff than we are. And so we take pride in our morality, how good we can be. And really, really, it's how good that we can appear to be. And we all have blind spots, Right? And you can strut around and say, well, I've never cheated on my wife, but maybe you're super racist towards indigenous people. You know, well, at least, though, I've never done that, and you have a glaring blind spot. Like G- Jesus is pointing out that they're plotting murder and they're liars, and they go, well, at least we're not born from sexual immorality. This is really what the whole Sermon on the Mount is about. Jesus raises the bar because what human beings do is we have the list of rules and we just follow them outwardly check 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 done and Jesus in the sermon on the mount actually raises it to the level of your heart and he says you're all guilty 
right? He says, you know, you've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery, and people could go, yeah, done. Never cheated on my spouse. And Jesus says, but I tell you, if you even look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. And everyone goes, oh. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you know, don't be angry at your brother. And you go, okay, check. I've never, he goes, or, or sorry, don't commit murder. And we would all go, okay, I've never murdered someone, check. He says, but actually, I tell you, if you're angry with your brother, you've killed him in your heart. And we all go, oh. Like, and so, and, and on and on and on. Jesus actually makes it about our hearts, not just about the outward morality that we portray for people. But human beings, man, we love to do this. We love to just, here's the, the, the checklist that I can do. And meanwhile, my heart is all jacked up and it's full of all of these sins and evil thoughts. And Jesus is confronting that. And when Jesus confronts you on that, oftentimes you'll act like the crowd acts. Yeah, yeah, but what about them? They're way worse than I am, Jesus. So the reason the crowds couldn't hear Jesus is because they couldn't bear to hear him, right? He's, he's touching a nerve here. It's hard when you are a really religious, good, moral person, and you're told that that doesn't save you and you're a slave to sin. And we need the truth to set us free. It's really hard when you are a good, moral, religious person, and Jesus comes in, he says, you're a slave to sin. That's hard to hear. But we need to hear it because the truth will set us free. And it's pride, again, when we're confronted with moral inadequacy to ignore it and get angry at it. It's pride, right? Jesus confronts them, and what do they do? They just slam his upbringing. So Jesus confronts their ethnic pride. He confronts their kind of moral blind spots. And then lastly, he confronts their faulty theology. Verse 48, it just, they just get mean. <laughs> the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and you have a demon? Which I'm like, again, it reminds me of my children <laughs> sometimes. I'm like, they're just grasping at straws. Well, Jesus, at least we're not born of sexual morality. And then Jesus offends them a little bit more. And like, aren't we right in that you're a Samaritan and you also have a demon? It's just grasping at anything, right? Now, here's why this was insulting. Because we, uh, culturally, G the Jews calling him a Samaritan means nothing to us. We're like, okay. But the Samaritans were a mixed race, right? Half Jewish, and, and they had intermingled and mixed with other nations. And, and they actually had a, a religion that was slightly different than, than, the, than the Jews, and they considered it apostate. They are not like us. It is false. And so to call someone a Samaritan was really a, a term of abuse, referring to Jesus as a heretic. He has faulty worship. He's a half-breed. Those kind of insults. And so they're saying, like, you're, you're a Samaritan, aren't you, Jesus? Basically, like, you have bad theology, don't you, Jesus? Like the Samaritans did. Or you, you, you have faulty worship, right? Like, you, you're kind of a half-breed, aren't you, Jesus? And then on top of that, and you're also demon-possessed, aren't you? <laughs> so think about that. Right after Jesus has said, hey, crowds, your father is actually Satan, 
Now they're claiming, wow, Jesus, you're actually demon-possessed, aren't you? And so I love Jesus' answer. I do not have a demon, and all I'm doing is honoring the Father. I'm not seeking my own glory. God is the judge. And then he says, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never see death. Isn't that an unbelievable promise? If anyone keeps my word, he'll never see death. And you would think, right, because many of you have experienced that when you hear that if I follow Jesus and he sets me free, I don't even have to, I don't have to be afraid of death. We would go, that's, that's amazing, Jesus. It's an amazing gift of salvation. Obviously, he's not talking about physical death. Every human being dies. He's talking about spiritual death. If you follow me, if you abide in my word, if you keep my word, you'll never taste spiritual death. And here's how they respond, verse 52. It's like, aha, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never taste death. So Jesus, you're not making any sense because they're thinking physically, right? You'll say, if I keep your, your word, I'm, I'm never going to die. Well, Abraham died, the prophets all died, and yet you're saying that we won't die, so it's not making a whole lot of sense. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? Which Jesus is claiming to be greater. And, and the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? So really what they're saying is, Jesus, you're not making any logical sense. You're a Samaritan, right? Aren't you? You have bad theology, and now your, your, your statements don't fit into our rational theological boxes. We know about Abraham. We know the scriptures. We know about the prophets. They all died, and now you're saying that none of us will die if we believe in you. It, it doesn't make sense, Jesus. And so Jesus responds, I'm not glorifying myself. The Father does, right? I'm not, I'm not the one who's trying to glorify myself. God the Father is glorifying me. And then he says, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So that's an amazing statement. Jesus says, Abraham was excited for me to arrive. He rejoiced that he would see my day, and here's kind of a puzzle that Jesus says, he saw it. So you're going to go, how did that happen? And I got to tell you, I'm not 100% sure. Did Jesus appear to Abraham? Was it when he ha uh, went to sacrifice Isaac and the idea of a substitutionary sacrifice, that that was some kind of glimpse and Abraham knew that one day Jesus was going to come? We're not, we're not told straight out, how did Abraham see it and rejoice? I think Abraham just trusted by faith that one day someone's coming who's going to free us and he rejoiced in that. And look, again, the crowds respond, Jesus, you're not even 50 years old yet. And you're talking about seeing Abraham? Like, you have to understand, Jesus, that's more than 2,000 years earlier. You're talking about Abraham seeing me and rejoicing. And Are you really claiming that you were there 2,000 years earlier? You're like 30 years old. And so here's how it ends, right? This is the, the, the climax to the tension and the conflict, Jesus said to them, verse 58, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, to us, English readers, that feels like an incomplete sentence. Before Abraham was, I am what? What are you? 
I am who? Like Jesus finished the sentence, right? And in English, we go, before Abraham was, I am. That's terrible grammar. But the reason that the sentence is unfinished, it's, it's just I am. The name of God. So Jesus isn't claiming to just be 2,000 years old. Yeah, Abraham saw me. I've just lived a really long time. Jesus is claiming transcendence over time itself. He says, I am the I am. I've always been. I am Yahweh. That's why the crowds respond the way that they do. They pick up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. It became mob rule. Notice how quickly, verse 30, many believed in him. Verse 59, we're picking up stones to kill this guy. Because we're so offended by him. His statements, one, we don't like that he challenges our ethnic pride. Two, we don't like that he points out our moral blind spots. Three, his theology and his understanding of Abraham and the prophets and Yahweh doesn't fit our understanding, so it must be blasphemy, so he needs to die. And I love, and we're not told, but man, I can't wait Maybe not one of the first questions, if you're allowed to ask questions to Jesus when you get to heaven. I hope so. One of the first questions I'm going to ask him is, what did that look, how did you hide yourself from an unruly mob? We're not told. It just says he hid himself and he just went out of the, the temple. I mean, this mob wanted to kill him. So we've seen, I mean, Jesus confronts our own familial pride where we go, man, I'm a fifth generation Christian. Look at this, Jesus. He, he confronts that and he goes, you're a slave to sin. He, he confronts our moral blind spots when, when, when sin is exposed in us and we go, yeah, but well, what about them or what about them? I'm not as bad as them. And he says, you are a slave to sin. You need to know the truth and to be set free. And then Jesus, I believe, he confronts our theology or maybe just Things we think are true and important about Christianity that we hold on to so tightly that actually don't matter. Jesus comes and he kind of pushes back on it. So don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that theology doesn't matter. Theology is very important. But for many of us, we kind of hold on to our theologies, even secondary or third things that in matter of importance and we just hold on so tight and we go I am right about this and I will never change my mind about this secondary or or third tier or fourth tier theology and I think sometimes Jesus comes and he kind of pushes back against that I mean I'll give you a few examples from my own life I mean some of you your view of salvation is very neat and tidy and orderly you hear the gospel, you say the prayer, right? You ask Jesus to come into your heart, you make a profession, then you have to have a certain amount of good understanding, and then, and some of you grew up this way, once you know enough, then you can become baptized because you're like really serious about following Jesus. But do you know what throws a wrench in that? The thief on the cross. He never went to a baptism class. He was never baptized. He hung on the cross. Do you know? I looked it up. The only thing the man said to Jesus, well, one, he said to the other robber, he said, hey, this man's done nothing wrong. And then he says, Jesus, remember me. And Jesus says, you're going to be with me in paradise. And I go, what? That's not fair. He didn't ask Jesus into his heart. He didn't get baptized. He didn't have a proper theology of, you know, penal substitutionary atonement. I go, this doesn't seem fair. How does he make it in? 
So sometimes what Jesus does and says, it kind of messes with our systems where we go, oh, maybe salvation doesn't look exactly the same for every single human being. Even, even I've noticed through the book of John, even our views of salvation, we sometimes think that it's all about our free will to choose Jesus. Just try Jesus, right? I, I remember as a teen, uh, our, our youth pastor led us through something called Pascal's Wager. Has, have any of you ever heard of that? So Pascal's Wager, it's this idea that Pascal, basically this kind of philosopher and thinker, he said, well, you can either accept that God exists, and then if you're wrong in the end, you lose nothing, so just believe that God exists. Or, but look, if you don't believe that God exists and he does exist, then you lose everything. So it was this idea of like, just whether you actually believe or not, just believe because it's a gamble, right? And in the end, if you're wrong, well, you didn't really lose out on anything. And, and so many of you, we kind of have this view that, well, I got to convince people to accept Jesus or just try Jesus for a little bit. But we've seen over and over in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And for many of you, because I've had conversations with you, during this series, you've gone, well, wait a second. God is the one who opens our, I, I thought that I just one day decided to follow Jesus. And so it can kind of mess with your theology a little bit. We go, actually, no, no one would choose God unless he drew them to himself. And we go, well, that doesn't seem fair. I don't know how I feel about that. We could go on and on, right? The Sabbath, I've had conversations with people uh, in our day and age that really wrestle. I, I really think I'm not, I'm not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath at all. And Jesus comes along, and seemingly, he breaks a lot of their Sabbath traditions. This is why they, they got really mad at him. Your disciples are picking grain on the Sabbath. You're healing people on the Sabbath. You're doing things on the Sabbath. And so maybe that messes with some of you. You'll go, oh, maybe it's actually good if I went and helped pull my, my neighbor's car out of the ditch, even if it's a Sabbath. Maybe that's okay. Even me eating meat to idols, right? We don't, we don't wrestle with that. But uh, Paul, in in Romans, that was a massive debate. It was considered sin, like a grotesque sin to eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And Paul says, actually, the gospel set you free. It's just meat. And do what your conscience is telling you to do. And for some, man, that just messes with my, my view of things. Jesus eating with prostitutes and sinners. It can, we just view, well, Jesus was so holy. Why would he associate with people like that? Am I supposed to have sinners over to my house for dinner? Yes. And then what happens is we can sometimes take secondary theological issues and our opinions on them and my interpretations of scripture on them. And then I hold on so tightly to them that then it becomes an issue of pride. And so no longer is our boasting in the cross our boasting is in, look at how neat and tidy my theology is. And we go, well, I'm a Calvinist, or I'm not a Calvinist. And we argue about that. Or we go, I'm complementarian, or I'm egalitarian. And we argue about these secondary issues. I was baptized by pouring water. I was baptized by dunking. And my, my, my worry is that we might actually miss Jesus in all of the arguing about secondary things. And it's pride to go, my theology is better than yours about these issues. So I'll give you an example. Um, probably 12, 13 years ago, I don't know uh, if you heard of the movement that was like young, reformed, and restless, and it was really popular with like young men, and I, I, I really got, I started 
diving into Reformed theology. And it was like, man, this is so good. It's such rich teaching. But the problem was, then I became very prideful if anyone else thought differently than me. You clearly don't understand the Bible as well as I do. You've never read the Institutes by Calvin? Are you even a Christian? And then it just, you walk around with this strut where you go, obviously you people who maybe lean more towards Arminian theology, you're, you're, ugh, are you even Christian? And I'll tell you, it was just pride in my heart going, man, I know my theology. And if we're not careful, you can hold so tightly to that, that maybe Jesus comes along and kind of confronts you on some of that and you might miss Jesus. Now, again, theology is not bad. We all need to figure out what we believe, but I'm talking about secondary and third-tier things that we just view as, I am so much smarter than everybody else. So how do we respond then when Jesus confronts us on familial heritage pride where we go, look, I'm a fifth-generation Christian. I'm important. Or where we're, our, our, our morality, where we have all these blind spots where we're pointing out everyone else's sin and we're, all, we're missing our own. Or when we just have maybe pride around our theology or maybe even just misguided theology. How do we respond well? We don't want to be like the crowds, right? Who defend their ethnic pride, who lash out at Jesus over morality and then point fingers instead of repenting and who ultimately pick up stones to kill him. So how do we do this? I think we're told, Jesus says, you're actually my disciple if you abide in my word. So when we do that, when we abide in the words of Jesus, we're told that we'll know the truth, that's Jesus, and Jesus will set us free. And Jesus tells us, if I set you free, if the Son sets you free, then you're actually free. And if you keep his word and you abide in him, you actually won't see death. So here's what, how that plays out. When we know Jesus, when we abide in his word and we know Jesus and he sets us free, then we know that Praise God for our family heritage and our spiritual upbringing. Praise God. That doesn't make you a Christian. Jesus does. Jesus frees you. Jesus removes your spiritual chains. Jesus brings you into his kingdom. Nothing else. And so when, when, we, when we are confronted with Jesus and the truth of who he is, and then we're set free, we go, yeah, right. I, I did nothing. I brought nothing to the table. When we know Jesus and we know the truth and we're confronted with blind spots in our morality, there's no need to lash out because we go, I'm free. I don't have to defend myself. I don't, have to, I don't have to make myself look better in comparison to other people. I'm free. I can accept critique. I can repent of it. I can actually own up to it because I know the truth, Jesus, and Jesus has set me free. I, I don't have to pretend. I can just own up to it. And when we know Jesus, then we actually hold secondary and third-tier theologies with a loose hand and a gracious spirit where I don't have to argue and prove, and prove my, myself and split over secondary things. That's okay. You think differently than me? Praise God. I still think I'm right, but praise God. I can just hold it with an open hand. I want to learn what other people, how they interpret scriptures. Praise God for that. So I want to encourage you, the more that you abide in Jesus, the more that you know his words, 
The more that you study him and obey him, you will continually taste more and more freedom. And these things that we kind of bring up as Jesus confronts us, they become really silly. And we go, I don't, I don't have to play those kind of games anymore. I'm free from that. So Jesus, I just thank you for your word. I thank you how it confronts us and it challenges us. I mean, 2,000 years later, we, we are exactly the same. We place so much pride in our upbringing. We place so much pride in our, our Christian heritage. And again, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with saying, yeah, I'm glad I was raised in the family I was raised in. But that doesn't save us. And so forgive us when we kind of bring our, our Christian heritage and upbringing as if that's some kind of thing to barter with. I mean, we're slaves to sin, Jesus. We desperately need to be set free. And forgive us when we kind of view our morality as, as somehow justifying ourselves or impressing you God, and then when we're confronted with sin, maybe even hidden sin in our hearts, then we lash out like the crowds did, and we point fingers at other people because we don't like it when we're exposed, and we don't like it when it's revealed that we are a slave to sin, and we desperately need to be made free. And forgive us, God, when, when we hold so tightly to, to secondary theologies where sometimes, you know, Jesus, we might miss you in the midst of having pride of how well we understand the Bible. And so forgive us of that, God. Help us to abide in you and that we would know you and that, Jesus, you are the one that sets us free. And so thank you, God. You are so faithful. I just pray for all of us in this room. I know that I've been convicted all week about each area, and so God, help us to just have and walk in that kind of freedom where we go, yes, I was a slave to sin, but I know the truth, and Jesus has set me free, and that we could walk in that kind of freedom. And so we just pray all of this in your name, Jesus. Amen.